Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. As Anne Seba writes of Wallace Windsor, quote, We cannot by any rational means explain why a middle-aged married woman with large hands and a mole on her chin convinced a troubled boyish prince to believe that his life could have no meaning unless he lived alongside her. But God, is it ever fun to speculate. Today I'm talking with Anne Seba. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. As Anne Seba writes of Wallace Windsor, quote, We cannot by any rational means explain why a middle-aged married woman with large hands and a mole on her chin convinced a troubled boyish prince to believe that his life could have no meaning unless he lived alongside her. But God, is it ever fun to speculate. Today I'm talking with Anne Seba about her new book, That Woman, The Life of Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Biography. I wonder if, just by starting out, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I've always wanted to be a journalist. I remember my parents bought me a toy typewriter when I was eight. Um, and then I read history at university, and I was very lucky. I went to university in London, and just across the way was the BBC World Service. So my very first job was in the BBC Arabic service. I mean, just to get a first job on your CV is so important. And then I applied to be a foreign correspondent at Reuters. And it was just the right time. They were obviously looking for a woman. They'd never taken a woman before. They didn't think a woman could be a foreign correspondent. But I was the right face at the right time. So I was hired as the first woman graduate trainee at Reuters. And I had a ball for six years. They sent me to Rome. And I couldn't believe I was being paid to do work that was just such fun. And then I did a terrible thing as far as Reuters was concerned. It was wonderful for me, but I got married and had a baby. So I had to leave Reuters, and I went to live in New York. And it was actually living in New York that turned me around because um, I couldn't bear the thought of not working, but I couldn't bear the thought of not being with my baby, and writing books is just fantastic. So I wrote my first book in America, and from then on, I was away, and I just, um, wrote books constantly, but I've always been a journalist as well. I love being a journalist, and I think it's terribly important for what I do, not just to get immersed in documents and archives and libraries and papers, because that's terribly lonely, and you just lose track sometimes of, of the real story. So anything I do, I try and find people to interview as part of my research, even if they didn't actually know the person they may have known somebody who did, or there's some sort of tangential link. Um, and I think being a journalist is just the best career in the world, and I love being a biographer. I, I'm pleased that I can combine the two. So that's how I got started in writing biographies, endless fascination with people. So you describe Wallace Simpson in the book, which is what we're here to talk about, your book about Wallace Simpson. You describe her as, quote, a disruptive presence, which is such an excellent way of summarizing her effect on English history. But I wonder what drew you to this subject of her, to her as a biographical subject? Well, I've done a lot of interviews with 
difficult women, and I've written biographies about women, and I love to try and come up with a different view so that I can show something slightly revisionist, where the woman isn't quite what you think they were, or the person. And I'd written a book about Jenny Churchill, who was Winston's American mother, and I remember when I delivered it to my agent in 2007, I said, well, of course, part of the problem that Jenny faced was that the British establishment just didn't get her. You know, she was better dressed, better educated, smarter, wittier than all her English sisters. And then I said, but of course, you know, the American woman who the British establishment really didn't get was Wallace Simpson. And it goes the other way, too. She didn't get them. She didn't understand England. And as soon as the words were out of my mouth, my agent said, that has to be your next book. And I said, um, I hope you don't mind. This is my clock ticking. Sure. You want me to stop while that tinkles? Okay. <laughs> It'll stop in a minute. Okay. Okay. So um, I said to my agent, well, I'd love to write about Wallace because I've always been fascinated by the 1930s. I read history at university and specialized in 1936. But I said, I'm not just going to write a book about Wallace that rehashes all the old stuff. I'm only interested if I can come up with new material. There has to be a reason for doing it, something new to say. It's not good enough just to say there's a new generation or there's never been a book by a woman, although that's true. You know, no woman had written a biography of Wallace. But my agent was absolutely emphatic that I must do it, I'd find something. So I signed a contract, and then I thought, oh, my God, where do I start? You know, where is the new material? And that was really what defined my book because I did come up with this extraordinary cache, this archive of new letters, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But you can see why, in answer to your question, why did I write this book, I've had a long fascination with the 1930s. I've had a long fascination with women who have had to juggle, have had to use influence in a sort of backhanded way I've written about Mother Teresa and Laura Ashley and playwright called Enid Bagnold, and they've all been quite influential women, but they haven't necessarily used their influence overtly. Now, with Wallace, of course, she did. She certainly um, manipulated, manipulated all her friends, and although what I've tried to do is explain why she did and what drove her, you may not necessarily like her anymore at the end of my book, but I, I rather hope you'll understand why she acted as she did. Um, we're going to get to your sources in the next question, but I was, upon reading your book, I'm one of those people who I read a book and then I want to read everything that's ever been written about the person. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to find that at least in America, there were really not that many books available about her. So what was the status of her, I guess, her biographical history up to this point before you started writing, and what were you seeking to revise about her? Well, uh, she'd written her own book, The Heart Has Its Reasons, in, in the 1950s, which actually was quite interesting. You often think, oh, an autobiography, that's not going to say anything. And she started off with um, a journalist who was going to help her do a sort of ghosted story, and then she couldn't get on with him, so she sacked him and ended up <laughs> writing it herself. And it wasn't it wasn't unrevealing. There, there were a few things. You certainly got her tone of voice, but of course she left out an awful lot. She didn't really tell you the story. And there's 
um, Edward, the Duke of Windsor, he wrote a book called A King's Story. That tells you almost nothing. That is turgid. And then there were a few other biographies which somehow tried to prove that she was a Nazi, a whore, a spy, a gold-digging adventuress, a prostitute, you know, all these extraordinary things. And I just figured, well, no woman can be all those things. She must be some of them. So I knew that after the Queen Mother, that's Queen Elizabeth, um, the present Queen's mother, after she died in 2002, and she really was Wallace's nemesis. I mean, those two women hated each other. So it was always a very delicate subject because Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, wouldn't have been Queen without Wallace and without the events of the abdication. So I figured after she died, people might talk more freely, and I was right. And there were some documents revealed in the National Archives here in England at at Kew. There were some documents that were revealed after the Queen Mother's death. So I started to see a sort of relaxation in attitudes. And the other big relaxation in attitudes came because the Queen herself has seen her children get divorced. And I think seeing three out of your four children face divorce has to make you understand and be more tolerant. And that's really the situation for almost every family in the land. So we have different attitudes to divorce, obviously, you might think, um, since 1936. But in 1936 Britain, divorce was so difficult for a woman. There was really only one ground to get a divorce, and that was proving your husband's adultery. So for Wallace to have two living husbands, when everyone knew that there was already an affair going on, how could she possibly prove her husband's adultery without also admitting her own, but she didn't? So everyone knew that material facts were not being revealed, that collusion was going on. And that's really why she was so demonized, so loathed, because other women weren't able to get divorce, uh, divorces from husbands, however awful their situation might be. So all of that has just changed dramatically since 1936. So that's the sort of background that I knew was was ripe. It was bound to be fertile territory. I still didn't know precisely what I would find. And it was this precise cache of 15 letters from Wallace to Ernest that just were like gold dust for a biographer to find because they really changed the whole way the story has been told. Hitherto, it's been told as a wonderful, romantic love story of two people beyond the first flush of youth who finally find each other and are allowed to ride off into the midnight sun happy ever after. Well, I'm sorry, but it just isn't quite like that. Edward, um, who became Edward VIII, but was never crowned, Edward was obsessively in love with Wallace. And I think he always, at some deep subliminal level, knew that he wasn't up to being king. He didn't want to be king. And while I don't think Wallace was actually an excuse, because I do think he loved her, but he loved her obsessionally. They say love is mad. It really was. It was sort of pathological in his case. I don't think she loved him in anything like the same way 
I think she loved the glamour, she loved the lifestyle, she loved being loved, but always thought that it would end. As soon as he was king, the British establishment wouldn't allow it. You know, somebody younger, more suitable would come along, and she'd just go back to safe, secure, second husband, Ernest Simpson, pick up the threads of their old life with a few jewels and a few memories. Now, these letters that I found between Wallace and Ernest during this critical period when her divorce was going through revealed that actually it was Ernest she still loved. Ernest she regretted losing. And the new king, who um, had abdicated and given up everything, throne, empire, name, in order to have Wallace, this new king, Wallace was ridiculing as Peter Pan. In other words, the boy who would never grow up. You see, I think Wallace recognized only too clearly his multiple personality flaws that he actually didn't really want the crown. He couldn't grow up and face his duty. He was much happier giving it all up and going off to marry Wallace Simpson. And yet she's so often accused of being so ambitious. Um, that's probably the derogatory term that's most often applied to her. Where did that ambition that she had come from? And was she well, that see, ambitious I, even? Well, I, I think she was ambitious for her security. I don't think she was ever ambitious to be queen. That was much too much like hard work. You know, <laughs> opening factories and going to schools. You've seen how our present queen works with the diamond jubilee. She's really an incredible force. I mean, weren't we lucky to get the, the right one? But um, Wallace didn't have an intention of that sort of hard work. No, but you're right to say she was ambitious. I think of all the insults flung at her, the insult of gold-digging adventurous, that's probably um, hard to take away from her. Where did it come from? It came from this deep insecurity of her childhood. Her father died, T. Wallace Warfield, when she was just a few months old. In fact, both her parents came from the top drawer in American society. As far as Baltimore society was concerned, or American society, this was elite. This was patrician. The Warfields, her father's side, and the Montagues on her mother's side. However, because her father died, leaving her mother, Alice Montague, a single mother, her mother really felt the chill wind of being an outsider. She tried to be independent. She sold embroidery at the local craft shop. She took in lodgers um, to her apartment. She tried to run a restaurant at one point. I mean, nothing worked. Nothing made money. And I think that insecurity where they were dependent on an uncle, an uncle who sometimes gave her lots of money and sometimes nothing at all, an uncle who wouldn't give Wallace a coming-out ball. You know, that sort of cruelly controlling aspect. I think that damaged Wallace in her childhood. I think it was a lesson that was seared deeply into her psyche. She didn't want to be at another man's mercy as she'd seen her mother. She wanted to avenge her mother's poverty. And I think that explains an awful lot of Wallace's craving for jewellery. Uh, I see the jewellery almost as a sort of devil, a, a Faustian pact that she made where, where the part of the devil is played by jewellery tempting her, luring her along. What, she was unable to say no to that, but she thought it would come to a natural end. And historically, she was right. 
historically, British kings or British princes have had mistresses, and then when they actually take the reins of power, their advisors won't let them marry the mistress. They can keep the mistress as long as that's the case. But you see, Edward wasn't prepared to have Wallace as a mistress. He wanted Wallace as his wife. And that was the sticking point, because not only uh, were the British not prepared to have Queen Wally, twice divorced, two living husbands, which was not allowable for most other women, but the Dominions wouldn't have it. So Canada, Australia, India, Ireland, South Africa, they were all horrified at the prospect of Edward marrying a woman who had divorced two husbands and whose two husbands, because they were living, posed the danger of possible blackmail. Queen Mary was terribly worried that these husbands might subsequently blackmail the crown. It was really a horrendous situation for the British royal family. This is a bit of a side question off that. I know in America, we often look at the situation and think, oh, they they disapproved of her because she was American. But from the British perspective, did that play any role in it at all? No, I don't think that at all was why um, she was disapproved of. I think her Americanness is interesting. I think it's one of the reasons why Winston Churchill was such a supporter, because he, of course, had an American mother. And I think he understood that his own mother was once called a mongrel, and she was teased for having 200 lovers. Of course, she didn't. Um, so I think he understood that there was something different about these American women. They certainly were sharper and wittier and better dressed. I think it also explains why she didn't quite understand the rest of the country. You know, she lived in London and surrounded herself with a lot of tolerant Londoners for whom being homosexual, being multi-married, all those things were fine. You know, what does it matter? Well, it did matter to the rest of the country who just weren't used to this sort of fast-paced new new sexuality where individual fulfillment was okay, personal happiness was okay. I'm afraid it wasn't okay in the rest of the country. Uh, they really believed in duty above all, sacrifice, those sorts of things. I mean, do you know the film Brief Encounter? Does, does that mean anything to you? Yes, yes. Well, Brief Encounter, I think that's the story that really conveys the moral attitudes of England, where everyone understands that people fall in love. You you can't always help falling in love. What you can help is you don't give in to that temptation. You simply have to say, well, I fell in love, and now I'm going to be so stoical. I'm going to give up my love. I'm going to go back to being a good wife, a good mother, and those sorts of things. I mean, that's that's what Edward was not prepared to do. The other quote that I love from this time is Ramsay MacDonald, the British Prime Minister in 1936, said, um, the British are fine with fornication. It's adultery they can't cope with. And that's absolutely the prevailing attitude. And especially after World War One, where so many had sacrificed so much and given up so much that for Edward to insist on marriage to this woman, that was what stuck in the craw, not not the fact that she was American. No, I really don't think that that was what bothered people at all. It was her two husbands, her previous marriages. 
Uh, you write in the book that to understand her, we must understand the horror of her first marriage. Can you describe that a bit? Yes, her first marriage to Wynne Spencer, a Chicago-born, um, his parents were stockbrokers, so you know, not particularly elite, but a good family, a good family full of duty and service. They'd, they'd all been involved in, in the war effort. He was one of six. He was a bit older, so experienced, a man of the world, but quite courageous, a pioneer naval aviator at, at, at this point, 1916, was not the norm. So one has to assume he, he was quite a, a special, courageous, brave man. What went wrong? I think Wallace was obviously sexually inexperienced because the marriage was a disaster from the start. And he turned to drink. He became an alcoholic. Now, who knows whether he already was an alcoholic and his alcoholism certainly fueled his abusive behavior, which verged on violence. At one point, he locked Wallace up in the bathroom. He certainly behaved badly. I think what interests me as a biographer is, is what provoked that, what provoked the frustration, because it was pretty much a disaster from the start. I think you probably have to conclude they were sexually incompatible, and there could be a number of reasons for that. I think it's possible that um, Wynne Spencer gave Wallace syphilis, because a number of naval wives certainly suffered from that. That wouldn't have been unusual if that were the case, and that might explain why she couldn't have children. Personally, I think it's more likely that she had some sort of disorder of sexual development. It's a sort of umbrella term known as DSD. Perhaps she didn't have a womb or a faulty cervix or something like that that made sex either difficult or uncomfortable or impossible, certainly, to produce a child. There was no child of this marriage, no pregnancy that anybody knows about. And in these circumstances, Wynne Spencer clearly behaved badly. Now, we only have his version of the narrative, not hers. I mean, sorry, we only have her version of the narrative, not his. But if you look at both his subsequent marriages, which failed, both wives also cite his violence and alcoholism. So probably Wallace is telling the truth. And as I say, what is really interesting is to know why the marriage was such a disaster from the start. The relationship with Ernest Simpson was very different, right? Yes, I think Ernest, who was married at the time that he met Wallace and divorced his first wife and left a daughter as well, I think he just fell passionately in love with Wallace, I think, there was something charismatic about her, and he really always loved her. I think even after their divorce, he still felt this kernel of love for Wallace. I think it was a fatherly love in a way. He sometimes wrote to Wallace as dearest child, and I don't think it was a sort of passionate, lustful, youthful love, but I think it was a real love which Wallace recognized too late too late she was going to forfeit in order to do what she had to do. She trapped, she was trapped. She trapped herself into the situation where she had to marry Edward. 
um, who was not king at this point. He was Duke of Windsor. And I think it was really only once she realized what she'd lost in earnest that she recognized she had lost the love of a good man, a true man. And it was too late, of course. How did she meet Edward? She met Edward when she came to London with Ernest Simpson. That was one of the attractions for Wallace about him. I think there were many attractions. He was tall and good-looking, but he was kind. Um, he was reasonably well-off. He was the scion of um, an Anglo-American shipping family. And it's the Anglo bit that appealed to her because it enabled her to come to London with him. They were married in 28 and to start afresh in London, to wipe the slate clean. So in London, she became a noted hostess. There was never any discussion of a child, no room for the child in, for a possible child in the flat they created together. And I think, um, Really, it was the entertaining that gave her some sort of fame in a small circle that she knew of many American women who were close to the Prince of Wales. Now, the Prince of Wales, um, Edward, Albert, Christian, George, Andrew, Patrick, David, I've been calling him Edward, um, his intimates called him David, but I'm not an intimate, so I think we'll stick to Edward. Edward really loved everything American. He loved trivial things like um, trouser turn-ups, jazz, telephone, painted fingernails, cocktails, those sort of things. But he loved American women. He just thought they were much more fun to be with, which they probably were. So um, he had a number of American friends, and his current lady love was Thelma Furness, and Thelma was a friend of Wallace's, so she invited Wallace and Ernest to chaperone her the first time. That's how they met at this place in the Midlands called Melton Mowbray. And Wallace and Ernest were invited to be chaperones, but Wallace quickly made her mark and they were invited again. And he thought she was so witty and such fun and such a breath of fresh air. So it really wasn't long before Wallace and Ernest were inviting Edward to their flat in, in Marble Arch in the centre of London and Wallace had a reputation for being brilliant at cooking unusual dishes, often southern dishes. She played on her southern heritage and for mixing cocktails. And he used their flat as a home from home. Um, you write of them in retrospect that, quote, few who knew them would describe what they have as love. How would you describe it? Oh, sad, empty, superficial, after the marriage, I think, in 1937, I think Edward always thought, well, once he was married, he'd be allowed back home with Wallace after a suitable interval of time. And they'd live in Fort Belvedere outside Windsor as an ex-king with all the pleasures and privileges and none of the work and responsibility. Well, the new king and queen... Elizabeth and George VI weren't going to have any of that. They were jolly well going to be punished for this perfidy. Um, and actually, I think most people in England felt they didn't deserve to come back and just, you know, live, live a life of luxury without hard work. So they remained really as exiles. And the biting 
um, the, the bitterness really was corrosive because Edward was created Duke of Windsor and Wallace, HRH, Royal Initials, His Royal Highness. But Wallace was never given those royal initials. She was just plain old Duchess of Windsor. Now, you might think, so what? Well, it matters a huge amount to Edward because without royal initials, she wouldn't be given the courtesies that he felt were due to his wonderful wife and in particular, nobody would curtsy to her. So Edward chose exile rather than see his wife humiliated and that's why they never came back. And I think that meant that he was permanently bitter and angry with his family, who were equally bitter and angry with him. And I think that Wallace decided all she could do in these circumstances, which became exile, was really to create a sort of mini kingdom of style. During World War II, they were shunted off to the Bahamas, um, where he became governor general. And I think Wallace made a decent fist of being Governor General's wife. But after the war, they looked around, and when England wasn't available, he would have gone to live in his ranch in Canada. But they settled in Paris, in a beautiful house that the French government made available to them at a peppercorn rent. But their life was empty. All they did was entertain, go to fashion shows, buy jewelry, buy more jewelry. He played golf. You know, they didn't have any purpose to their life. It was aimless. Now, I think he did love Wallace. He couldn't bear her even to be out of the room. But anyone who saw them together described how Wallace was sometimes rude to him. She was bored. Sometimes she humiliated him in public. I think she felt she'd been landed with something that she never intended to happen. And while she couldn't divorce him and she had to make the best of it, I don't think anyone could describe what she felt for him as love. Um, I think that most listeners are probably familiar with the circumstances of the abdication through its depiction in the King's speech. How does that film portrayal of Wallace Windsor line up with your impression of her during that time? Oh, I think the King's speech is absolutely wonderful. Of course, Wallace and Edward hardly appear in it, but I think it's, it's, it's accurate up to a point. I mean, of course, it's an interpretation. She did breeze in and take over during that brief period when she was the um, chief mistress. She held the reins of power as if she owned these ancient royal palaces, so she would hold out her hand as if she were the hostess. And Elizabeth, who was Duchess of York, was deeply offended that this American woman with a husband at that point, um, well, two husbands still, but, you know, she wasn't fully divorced. How dare she hold out her hand to greet her as if she were the hostess? I mean, I think that particular scene is very well realized. I think there are other things that I might take issue with along the lines of, I don't think Elizabeth, who married George and became the Queen, I don't think she was quite as pretty, or shall we say, quite as sexy as she's portrayed in the film. But I, th I think it's pretty accurate, and it shows the depth of antagonism against Wallace, because they, they just couldn't understand, the royal family couldn't understand how this 
handsome, charming prince who'd been brought up to be king was throwing it all away on this American divorcee with no money, no background, no... I mean, the Queen Mother called her the lowest of the low. She certainly wasn't the lowest of the low. Her her family came from um, arguably quite patrician roots, but, you know, she didn't have breeding in the way that they expected him to marry some beautiful English virginal princess who was young enough to bear him children. That was one of the problems as well. You know, Wallace wasn't ever going to bear him a child, and if she had, that would have been even worse, (laughs) arguably. They certainly didn't want Wallace's child becoming the future king or queen. But everything about her was wrong, and I think you, you see that very clearly in the King's Speech. I wonder, did you happen to see the Madonna movie about her as well? Did I happen to see it? I've seen it four times. Did you like it? <laughs> and it's changed. Well, it's it's improved yeah. by the fourth time. I loved Andrea Riseborough. She's I thought amazing. she gave a terrific performance, mm-hmm. and I think she absolutely understood um, what Wallace in these letters that I've found talks about as her her dual nature. You know, on the one hand, this sort of grasping ambition which is a cover for her insecurity. And on the other hand, this sort of brittle insecurity of knowing she's not right and knowing that she's going to be thrown out on her ear any minute and that she's going to be abandoned. I I think Andrea Riseborough really is terrific. And fabulous costumes and room sets and, and all of that. So I would say, actually, well worth seeing. I'm just not very keen on the modern bit. Yeah, I think that was the problem. (laughs) Um, in her autobiography, Wallace wrote, uh, quote, when I was being good, I generally had a bad time. And when I was being bad, the opposite was true. And it's obviously a very revealing statement. But was there a degree of false bravado in looking back on her life in hindsight when she wrote it? Or did she genuinely believe that? Oh, I, that is the um, $500 million question, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I think she did genuinely believe it. She was fun-loving. She was witty. She sometimes said outrageous things and maybe paid a price for them. I think she recognized that she had a low boredom threshold and, and being good was boring, you know. And so being the wife of the Duke of Windsor was often very boring and she behaved badly. And everyone who saw them together saw how badly she behaved and how the Duke responded by this extraordinary humiliation and contrition. And then he'd go out and buy her a jewel. You know, what could he do to humiliate himself more because he recognized that she'd given up so much? So, uh, yes, I think it was true. And, and the longer she lived, the truer it became. You're also right. Where jewels or clothes were concerned, she was never fearful. And I love that line. Can you kind of describe her sense of style? Because she really is seen today as a style icon and also the importance of fashion in her life. Uh, fashion was really important to Wallace because in those days, the royal family couldn't give interviews or, or they didn't. I mean, the newspapers were so respectful to them. So she didn't have a voice. She didn't have a chance to put her side of the case. So what were the weapons at her disposal? Well, obviously fashion. And I think what she was saying with her fashion is, on the one hand, look at me, you know, look what an elegant 
queen you'd have had if you'd had me. Uh, what a chic woman I am, not the frumpy, dumpy woman over there who wears flowers in her hair, pointing to the Queen Mother. I mean, she was quite vicious in her comments about the Queen Mother. I, I suppose I should say the two women sometimes gave as good as they got, but um, it, it certainly fashion was a weapon. She was saying subliminally, I am an elegant, strong woman. You can't damage me. I'm okay. Whatever you've done to me, look at these amazing clothes, these amazing jewels. So the jewels needed to be set on something plain and stylish. You couldn't have these enormous jewels on a fussy, fancy outfit. So cut and style was everything. She wanted to patronize designers. She wanted to show that she was abreast of the latest fashions. And she really was. I mean, she pushed designers to create things for her. If you're looking, for example, at the jewels of Van Cleef and Arpel, she wanted a very modern necklace in the shape of a zipper that was um, unzipped. I mean, that was really daring because think of the sexual connotations of opening a lady's zip, and she wanted this at her neck, half open. And Van Cleef and Arpel couldn't make it in the 30s, but they did construct something post-war for her. So you get an idea of how she took a lead in the design. I mean, she wasn't a designer herself, however much she might have wished to be, but she certainly pushed designers to create things for her that were sometimes seen as shocking. I mean, women weren't meant to wear diamonds during the day. That was very new as well, but, but she did it tastefully, tastefully but nonetheless expressing her personality that was big and bold and brash and absolutely on top of the world. Thank you so much for talking with us today about that woman. I know it's a terrible question to ask an author when their book has just come out, but do you have any idea what you're going to be writing next? <laughs> it's not a terrible question at all, although it does make us all feel a bit like vultures that, you know, you sort of attack one subject and then your claws are just hovering <laughs> at the ready to get into another subject. Um, my my claws are still um, put away. I haven't um, emerged yet from this because Wallace is just such an extraordinary subject. Who else can you find who's you know, a fashion icon, who divides opinion so much? But it probably will be another strong woman. Uh, uh, well, as I said at the beginning, being strong is sometimes a si considered a sign of weakness as well. But it'll be an interesting woman who's used her power and influence in different ways. It'll, I hope, be an aspirational woman. I mean, Wallace, in some ways, gives hope to a lot of people because you think, well, I don't need to be beautiful. I can still win the heart of a prince. I think when you turn the story on its head and look at him, you realize that actually she was the hunted, not the hunter. But, but they're all, I mean, there are these women around who before they could have careers, historically women have had to dive and duck and juggle and do things behind the scenes. So I've got my sights on a number of women and quite which one I think will be able to tell a story that illuminates something about the human condition as well as just telling the story of, of one particular person. I don't know. Watch this space. I, I haven't quite made up my mind. 
<laughs> Sounds very exciting. I've been talking today with Anne Siva about her book, That Woman, The Life of Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.